Welcome to the FedSpeak podcast, brought to you by MI Market News. I'm Pedro DaCosta, and I'm so excited to welcome Diane Swang to the program. Diane is Chief Economist at KPMG, and she is also an advisor to the Federal Reserve Board and various regional Fed banks. She was previously at Grant Thornton and Mesero Financial, where I first had the opportunity to start speaking with her as a much younger reporter. Thank you so much for coming on FedSpeak, Diane. It's great to be here. Let's start with this week's FOMC decision in the middle of all this financial market and banking turbulence. What were your takeaways from both the Fed statement and Chair Powell's press conference? Well, you know, there was a lot in there to unpack. I mean, first of all, it was kind of the the most dovish pause I could imagine. The Fed is clearly sort of walking on eggshells at this point in time. They're looking at what will likely be a tightening of credit conditions in the pipeline. They've only are, as at one point in time, Chair Paul said at 12 days into some turbulence that rapid rate hikes have revealed in fragilities in financial markets globally, not just in the U.S., And with that tightening already in the pipeline, they don't know how much heavy lifting that will do or if it will do more than they need to cool inflation and chill the economy. You know, their goal is to chill the economy, not send it into a deep freeze. And I think the concern now that you saw was, you know, we want to affirm our commitment to, you know, raising rates and getting rid of inflation. We don't want to do a repeat of the mistakes of the 1970s. The Fed is an institution that ultimately, you know, hedges risks and they're hedging their downside risks and their downside risk up until a couple of weeks ago was a repeat of the 1970s and a more prolonged corrosive bout of inflation that eroded living standards. Now they're worried about the risk that not only do they cool inflation, they get more of a seizure in credit markets, and that's not something they want. Now, many people have sort of said this is an either-or trade-off, that you either get financial stability or you get rid of inflation. You can't have both. I actually think, given the nature of the fragilities we saw, that the kind of tightening that we see in credit markets is going to hit the backbone of the labor market, small businesses with less than 250 employees that accounted for nearly four of all five job openings and have driven employment gains since reopening and driven the extraordinary surge in demand for workers, which has helped to buoy overall demand. People often get confused on this inflation analysis. They're like, well, why can't workers earn more wages? Well, we want them earning more wages. It's when you have, you know, 815,000 new paychecks and acceleration in job generation and employment in the first two months of the year alone, on top of, you know, what many people needed in Social Security, an 8.7% increase in Social Security for 66 million people. That's a lot of money in the economy holding up the economy, but also making it too hot to touch and then eroding living standards for too many. And so this balance, I think, is really important. But I think what the Federal Reserve is now realizing is that after, you know, as recently as two weeks ago, you and I were watching Fed Chairman Powell say, well, you know, maybe we do a half percent hike at the next meeting. And the terminal rate on rates is probably the peak in rates is probably higher than we once thought. Now we're worried that perhaps not only is it not much higher, but the the tightening that's already in the pipeline could give us a more severe contraction in employment than the Fed had intended. You know, the Fed would like to sort of paint this picture of everything being nicely controlled. Yeah. And that they just pull a lever and, you know, magic appears and the economy sort of gently has an increase in unemployment, which I'm not sure 
any increase in unemployment is gentle, but you know that's sort of the picture they portrayed. But what they're now trying to steer is through that. And you know, you really saw also in Chairman Powell, I think, just how hard the last two weeks have been as well. Yeah, absolutely. It was a shorter than usual press press conference. Yeah, and no, and to your point about a dovish pivot, it's almost like he found a graceful way to pause without pausing because they they threw in that last hike, but everything else kind of like screamed that they were done, right? Yeah. And well, you know, they don't know. You you sort of get the sense of, well, we don't know. At the same time, you don't want to be hiking rates when you think you might be lowering them sooner. And he clearly doesn't want to convey that at this point in time. He doesn't want to say, you know, hey, we're going to be cutting rates anytime soon because they still have this inflation situation to deal with. But you're right. I mean, we really saw this sort of a, they wanted to show they're committed to inflation. They showed that, you know, I thought they'd do a pregnant pause and deliver later if they needed to, given the tightening that we don't know in the pipeline. And I think it was important that he also underscored that the risks are to the downside now. How do you see this potential credit crunch playing out, as you said, and over what time frame? Because that'll be something difficult for them to weigh as well. You might continue to get some high inflation readings, even as the, you know there might be long and variable lags in the in the onset of a credit crunch, if you will. Exactly, and and in fact, you know, this isn't a cliff event like we saw in two thousand eight. Remember, in two thousand eight, we were already eight months into a recession. And then we had a cliff event of that Lehman moment that happened. And with that cliff event, you actually saw large firms that couldn't make payroll all of a sudden when money market funds broke the dollar. And that was an extraordinary event. And it was a cliff event. This isn't the same kind of a credit crunch. This is one that slowly works through the system. And um, our own analysis, we've been doing scenarios, and that's all you can do right now. I mean, you know, frankly, it's just sort of shock the system as if we would have had a percent hike in in short-term interest rates, as if we would have had a percent and a half hike. Um, how does that play out over time? How does it play out if we were to also have some financial market volatility with that, which is highly likely that we'll have more volatility? And our scenarios are showing that, you know, as soon as the second quarter, we could be into contraction territory, but the real worst of the pain doesn't hit until we get over to the summer. And then the question is, how rapidly does the economy, you know, have to contract Or does it contract before the Fed steps in and feels more comfortable about inflation? And I really think this Federal Reserve, although they still state that 2% is their target on inflation, it's somewhat arbitrary. They really want to blow through that 3% level. And if you get a cooling that's much more rapid without having the economy go into a deep freeze, you know, in in a more controlled, but not as controlled as they'd like environment, the yeah. Fed could be then easing by the end of the year and into early next year. And then rethinking within 2024, what is optimal for the economy? Is it optimal to have a 2% inflation target? Is it optimal to have a higher inflation target and do that within their framework? They are, they're scheduled to do this anyways, to yeah. reevaluate what their framework is. And yeah. they'll also have to decide what is, you know, we like to talk about full employment, And, you know, what they're going to have to think about is what is their non-inflationary rate of unemployment? And, you know, it really gets goes down a rabbit hole when people keep thinking about it as this idea that, oh, wages are bad. No, wage gains aren't bad. Wage gains are great. Yeah. But in the kinds of numbers we've seen above and beyond where, you know, the supply of workers are at the moment, that gives us an overheating economy. And it's not that wages are driving it alone. It's demand. And also supply shocks. And the Fed is dealing with whatever every other central bank out there is dealing with. And that is that the pandemic in many ways 
um, acted as an accelerant and an amplifier to trends already in place. Yeah. And I often liken it to, you know, Lewis Carroll's Alice through the looking glass, propelled through the looking glass into a mere image of the world she left. And in many ways, the world we left um, is gone. And now we're in that reverse world. And that reverse world is one where geopolitical tensions are even more um, heightened, where borders are harder than they once were, where trade is less free-flowing than it once was, where the economy is dealing with more extreme weather events that can disrupt supply chains at any point in time. All of those frictions and an aging demographic of baby boomers now in the U.S., but globally, without a lot of immigration, you've got a lot of developed economies and even developing like China, aging very rapidly, which leaves you supply constrained. And then you've got to start thinking about keeping demand in line with a chronically undersupplied world. And that's a very hard place to be. Yeah, it's kind of that new regime that we might have entered, right? And and you haven't even mentioned the green transition, which is also going to add to sort of the cost, the underlying cost pressures that we might face. How do you how do you successful do you see the Fed being going back to the financial stability issue? How successful do you see them being in in sep- fully separating financial stability policy from, from interest rate policy? And how do you see this new lending facility uh, that they've launched, the bank term lending facility? Well, you know, I think it's important. All these things are important, but let's face it. At the end of the day, the Fed was trying to tighten credit conditions, and they tighten credit conditions, and to say that financial stability. And, you know, interest rate increases are not interlinked is not really the case. We know they are interlinked. And in fact, you know, rapid rate hikes, deposit flows were moving out of many banks before we had a crisis because they could get higher rates elsewhere. And the banks were constrained in terms of what they could give depositors. Um, given lower loan demand. And so you get this sort of vicious cycle that was causing a liquidity that became like a solvency crisis for many banks. But I think that's important to remember as well is that part of where we're at is because there were other places for in, people to go and park their money and feel safe. And it wasn't just triggered by any one event before this, although certainly some events accelerated it recently. But the rapid rate hikes that were in there, we have to, you know, the the phrase, and I always hate using it too much because people get, it's, it's what the but Chairman Powell used it, so I'll use it, non-linearity, right? That, you know, over time, things tend to mount. So you can't really disconnect what's happening between what's happening with rates and what's happening with financial stability, because in part, financial instability has been triggered by rapid rate hikes. Yes. And I think, you know, that's the heart of the issue. And, you know, the Fed had to play catch up and they did. And it's not as if we had not had rapid rate hikes in the past, but let's face it, we've also had financial instability triggered by rapid rate hikes in the past. I think back on the SNL crisis and how many banks did go under in the the 1980s as well. But the SNL crisis, I think, is an important one to sort of think about today because it was something that had a long tail risk to it. It wasn't something that happened overnight. Yeah. So some people would argue it did. But, you know, we're looking at, you know, what is the hybrid of work from home, meet yeah. office space as well. And is there a place where, you know, there's exposure in the commercial real estate market that we're not going to be doing as much activity in the commercial real estate market, much like we did in the early nineties. Um, I remember I'm old enough to remember this Pedro because I, I date you. And that is that um, I remember when Chairman Greenspan first said the 50 mile per hour headwind. And that was in, um, I believe it was October of 1991. The economy was in a recovery 
after going into recession. But what he hadn't anticipated was the SNL crisis and the overhang of real estate related to everything from some bad investment decisions and some tax law um, incentives that incented a lot of real estate. People were saying we had a 90-year supply of office buildings at the time. Wow. And I remember the bank that I worked for at the time, you know, looking out from the 57th floor and watching every crane come down in Chicago. Wow. And literally shut them down. And I was early, early on in my career, but it was a pretty big lesson in, you know, what could happen. And what happened was no matter how rate low rates went, you couldn't stimulate that part of the economy in real estate that is so interest rate sensitive. Yes. Even afterwards. And so that's something the Fed is going to have to consider on the other side of this, because the tails and many people renewing leases for offices and things like that. They roll over this year, next year, 2025. Yeah. And it's, you know, sort of a rolling thing that they're going to have to be aware of. That's a really good point. That brings me to my other question. You mentioned commercial real estate, but other other pockets of kind of financial fragility that you're watching. Everybody thought the risks were going to come from the non-bank sector after all, and they came right yes. from the banks. Well, but, you but know, there was it, also treasury market strains that we yes. that were felt last week. So I wonder where you're watching for this kind of so all of the above, you know, first of all, yes, the treasury market are watching very closely because the treasury market liquidity, you know, remember people forget this in context, you know, March 2020, the world shut down. Right. And in that moment, and even in the weeks leading up to it, people were rushing into the treasury bond market and they all wanted to buy treasuries, but there wasn't enough people selling them. Yeah. And, you know, it's kind of hard to believe, given how much debt we've issued, that there wasn't enough supply, but this is the safe haven. And so everybody ran into it and it seized up. And the Fed had intervened because the the seizure in that market, it's the oil of the market machine. Yeah. And without it, you, the market machine just doesn't work at all. The whole right. economy would stop and not be able to start up. We'd have the pandemic stop along with an inability to turn it, reopen and yeah. turn it back on again. Fed intervened and that did not happen. That was great. However, liquidity in that market's never been what it was pre-pandemic. Yeah. And we did see in recent weeks, it sees up as much as it did. Now, some of that was short selling yeah. and the market dealing with that. But it is something we're watching very closely because you can't have that seize up and not have and have the rest of the economy going and have the rest of credit markets going. The other issue is that we saw the IMF sort of finally all of a sudden come to terms with Sri Lanka, which, you know, defaulted early on and, you know, had many, many problems. But all of a sudden they're they're dealing with a package with Sri Lanka come through on that. They're talking to Pakistan, even though Pakistan is violating some of IMF's rules in terms of what they want them to do for a package. And that's because we've also seen revealed what we were worried about from day one as the Fed got into a rate hiking cycle is, you know, there's a lot of debt in the world and especially in emerging markets and on the peripheral of Asia there are more fragile emerging markets. And that's where there could be exposures that we don't know, you know, that we just don't know, you know, what kind of backdoor kind of exposure we have. I think back on the Taibot crisis and the, you know, the, the, the contagion effect that had, or the Russian debt debacle and the long-term capital management crisis, 1997, 1998. My whole um, history of life as an economist is defined by economic crises. Because <laughs> that's what I'm idiots about it. I'm, I'm severely dyslexic, but I remember the dates of these economic crises. That's what I'm good at. <laughs> 
I think it's it's pretty similar for financial journalists. You you remember where you were when you know yes. XYZ Bank went down and so on. If I could ask you about the other element of Fed tightening, which is QT, is there a chance that if that seems to have a direct kind of liquidity impact, is there a chance that despite their their best wishes and efforts, they will have to halt that that program? I think there's a very real chance of that. And that is what they have to debate. I mean, you know, they're not talking about it yet, which Chairman Powell was very quick to point out. And they really want to keep um, reducing their balance sheet. It's harder to reduce their balance sheet on the mortgage-backed security side because, you know, in the first place, they bought mortgages that most people didn't want. And in the second place, you know, nobody wants these, you know, very low fixed mortgages um, either. So, you know, these are are not, you know, the most attractive things for people to buy. So they're not selling them. They're just allowing them to mature off. And as we all know, part of the reason the housing market isn't moving at all and that prices are more buoyant than we expected them to be is because, hey, anyone who's already paid off their house, over 42% of households have paid off their house in full. They're hedged against inflation, right? And their shelter costs, or they're locked over 90% are locked into a fixed rate mortgage. So, you know, to think that they might not have to at some point in time do something else there, that is certainly a possibility and and it has to be on their table. And it is their balance sheet is how they've dealt with financial crises. Let's face it, that's they'd rather say that than interest rates, although they've used both tools in financial crises. Um, But I think it's important that, you know, they keep it on the table, but they want to keep that as their last thing that they have to do, because as their first line of defense. I mean, their balance sheet's already going up in response to borrowing at the discount window that we've yeah. seen. And it's higher than it was during um, the crisis, which actually the, the 2008 crisis, 2009 crisis, but that's actually not such a bad thing that some banks are doing what they need to do yeah. to stay liquid and afloat and using the discount window as it was meant to be used. And the stigma of it not being the stain that it once was. And I think that's, you know, maybe the the legacy of the financial crisis is something a little more functional on that side. I'm keeping my fingers crossed on that. Yeah. But, you know, to say that it's off the, it's not off the table. I mean, you know, Jay Powell was careful to say, we're not, we're not considering that. And I think that's an important thing because you also don't want to say we're considering it right now because you don't want to trigger more panic. Yeah. Well. So you mentioned one last question. You mentioned scenario analysis. Is one of your scenarios, is there a potential, not to be too pessimistic, but is there a risk that like we get a credit crunch, but it fails to dilute inflation because it's it's become sufficiently embedded? I mean, surely that must be one of the, the things that keeps Jay Powell up at night. That, that's got to be the number one. I mean, that's the Fed's worst nightmare, right? You know, our analysis suggests that we're not in the situation. I think Europe's more flirting with that at this moment in time, given the level of their inflation than we are. But it is the one thing you really think about, you think about a lot is, and that's why I think the Fed had made the decision they did. You know, I, I, I thought they'd do a pregnant pause. They did a dovish hike. Um, but the point is they cannot risk stagflation or a repeat. This is an institution hedging risks. So they're trying to hedge against that risk at the same time that they're dealing with financial stability. And, you know, I don't think there's a trade-off at the moment. At some point in time, there could be what they don't want to have happen. And I think what you have to see, if they had to step in so much that they stimulated the economy, then they'd have to turn around and raise rates again. And it would be a longer, more painful process to squeeze inflation out. We'd have a longer bout of inflation. I don't think they'd ever give up, but they realize quite fully that that's not where they want to be, which is part of the reason they sort of 
made this hike that they did, not knowing also what is in the pipeline exactly. But if it's not enough, but it's enough to keep things on on a cliff edge, that is the worst place for the Federal Reserve to be. And it is what you really worry about. You don't want to overcompensate and stimulate so much that all of a sudden you reignite and reflate an economy as you're also trying to cool it. And we've had inflation long enough that you do worry about that. And the Fed's very careful to point out that, oh, inflation expectations are still well anchored. They are, but they're a little higher than they were. Even with, you know, the things we know that cool off consumers' ideas about inflation, like energy prices coming down, that really helps a lot. Yet they're still longer term, a little higher than they were. And that's worrisome if we were to have a more prolonged bout of inflation as well. Let's hope we can avoid that worst case scenario path. You know, I hope it forever. I, you know, I was thinking about this. Someone was telling, asking me about, you know, what is, um, you know, Jay Powell's legacy, and yeah, they were worried about his legacy, and and I said, you know, you couldn't have asked for a harder set of circumstances. You know, a pandemic and an about of inflation, and you know, I mean, it's not wrong that the Fed believed that they could get back to three and a half percent inflation given the world we're in. They Maybe we're three to five months late. I mean, I was arguing that inflation was a little more sticky, but you know, those people who are keep arguing, well, the Fed should have tightened in the first place and all these things. And the reality was they were trying to restore an economy that hit an iceberg. And, you know, we were traversing COVID tainted waters, trying to get lifeboats in the water and not make it the Titanic. Yeah. We were trying to make sure people had supplies to get to land. And I don't think that was wrong. And I think that's really important to keep sight of. And the fact that, you know, the Fed thought we could get back to where we were and it'd be a low inflation environment, that's understandable, but the world changed. And once we they realized it, yeah, it was a little late, but say they had re- woken up to it four to five months earlier, we wouldn't have had that many rate hikes in the pipeline already. We still would have this problem. The counterfactuals don't hold up. And I think that's important to remember as well. And so, you know, I think it's important to sort of stay where we are and focus on where we can go. And I just, I think people forget that these policymakers, you know, they don't see the economy as numbers, as blips on a screen, like financial market participants often see it. It's people, it's people's lives. And they take that home with them every day. And, you know, spending enough time around them, you know how much they feel it. And it's hard. Yeah. As someone who's covered the Fed for a long time, I I, I do sense that there is that, that deep instinct about public service, but the, the Fed critics as they pile on, they certainly, I, I think they're- they, It's lost in translation. Are, yeah. Yeah. You know? They, they and, assume the worst from the- And, and, from the and I understand it. I get it, you know? And, you know, they're everyone's favorite political pinata, knowing people and understanding people's anger and growing up in stagflation as a kid, knowing what it was like watching my best friend go into poverty. And that's why I'm an economist is because I saw what it meant firsthand and I was lucky it wasn't me, but I was at one point in time bringing lunch money for her so she could have lunch because they didn't have enough money in their home. And that's a really hard thing. And when you see it firsthand, you don't want to ever see it again. So I do understand there's a whole generation of people who never had to go through that. But boy, they've had to go through enough. They've had to see the other side of it. Yeah. And I also have a lot of empathy for millennials. My 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 kids are, one's a millennial and one's Gen Z. So um, although my... My son, he's Gen Z. He, he he identifies as a millennial, and that's fine. Um, but um, <laughs> it is important to sort of you know that they've been through a lot too. I mean, you know, here 
you know, for them, their world is defined and, and bookmarked by things like, you know, the World Trade Center and 9-11, which I happen to be in and was responsible for a lot of people. in. And then, you know, the financial crisis and seeing what that meant and some of them graduating into, you know, a world that is not the world they thought it would be. And that is hard. So I understand people's anger. And I think we all have to have a little more empathy for each other. Absolutely. Lovely note to, to finish on. I thank you so much for your time. That was Diane Swank, Chief Economist at KPMG. Really appreciate it. Thank you.